Amen. So, <clears throat> continuing with uh, Moses' message to the nation of Israel as they're preparing to go into the promised land, God is giving them this second account of the law. And he continues in verse 1 of Deuteronomy 16 by saying, Observe the month of Abib, depending on how you want to pronounce that, and keep the Passover to the Lord your God. For in the month of Abib, the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night. So this is end of March, beginning of April. Uh, for the Jews, they have uh, both the religious and the civil calendar, which they still operate uh, by uh, to this day. And here the Lord is bringing to remembrance that departure out of Egypt, and we'll examine this in light of Christ. Verse 2, Therefore you shall sacrifice the Passover to the Lord your God from the flock and the herd to the place where the Lord chooses to put his name, which ultimately ended up being Jerusalem. You shall eat no leavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread with it. That is the bread of affliction. So, you know, don't think of, you know, pita pockets as something pleasant because, well, they're not, you know. It's the bread of affliction is what the Lord states right there. For you came out of the land of Egypt in haste that you may remember the day in which you came out of the land of Egypt all the days of your life. No leaven shall be seen among you in all your territory for seven days, nor shall any of you, uh, any of the meat which you sacrifice the first day at twilight remain overnight until morning. So all of this looking back to that occasion where they had been in Egypt, gone through the ten uh, or nine plagues, and that night the tenth plague came upon the nation of Egypt as uh, they did not sacrifice with Israel the, the lamb uh, at the doorsteps of their home. A remarkable picture from the past where uh, you know the blood of that sacrifice shed on their doorstep, on their doorstep, put on the doorposts and the lentils, the sign of the cross on the homes of all of these Jewish believers in preparation for the Lord sending what was referred to as the death angel over the entire nation and killing the firstborn from uh, all the living there in Egypt. They were supposed to be prepared to leave in haste and to, to have that attitude of readiness. Uh, this has come up a lot uh, recently. Uh, we see things developing uh, around us, particularly what's going on in Afghanistan right now, and uh, the potential that it has, not the you know assured fulfillment of Ezekiel 38, but the potential it has to fulfill Ezekiel chapter 38. And with that, um, you know, coupled together uh, is the idea that Christ's return is imminent that uh, things are developing so rapidly and so thoroughly uh, as never has been before. People uh, are on both sides of the coin, you know, anxiously awaiting, looking forward to uh, reading the signs, looking at what's going on, hopeful anticipation. The other side, skeptics, critics, those that are saying they don't believe it, saying that, you know, the church has somehow, you know, created this uh, idea of the rapture, you know, as a new invention of a Christian belief system. Uh, the first century church leaders insisted that the immediate return of Jesus Christ was so essential in the doctrine of Christianity that if anyone claimed to be a Christian and did not teach it, that they were a heretic, that they, that they were eternally condemned by God for not teaching it. So, you know, I'm very willing to have the conversation about uh, the rapture. The scripture clearly teaches it. The question is when, and I, I get that, you know, is it before the tribulation? Is it in the middle of the tribulation? Is it at the end of the tribulation? If you want the right answer, it's before the tribulation. <clears throat> you know, if, if, you want, if you want to debate, then we can talk about that otherwise. 
but the the thought that this is a new teaching within Christianity is completely false. That is a false premise. This isn't something that has been newly developed in Christianity. This has been a cornerstone earmark of Christianity since the very beginning. Look at the book of Acts, right? They sell everything they have and they live together communally. Not because they were so in love with one another. One another. Yes, that was part of the element, but because they thought Christ's return was so immediate that they didn't care for any of their earthly things. Christ was coming back, so why do I need a house? Why do I need land? Why do I need property? Why do I need all of these possessions? I'll just get rid of everything because Jesus is coming back any minute. So, so from the very beginning, the church functioned this way, right? If you haven't noticed, death is all around us. You know, I mean, the things that are going on, you know, people right now are looking at COVID and saying, oh, this is a catastrophe. Uh, I, I would encourage you to really look into that subject, right? Not to be a grand conspirator, you know, in the whole thing in that mindset. But, <clears throat> you know, the mortality rate worldwide has not increased, right? It hasn't, the death rate hasn't gone up at all. If, if COVID is such a grand killer, and, and people have died, I'm not, I'm not saying they haven't, I know people who have lost family members. If it's such a grand killer, then the death rate, the world death rate, would have gone up remarkably, or at least markedly to where you could measure. No, no increase whatsoever. Okay, so, uh, you know, the issue of death and the severity of our culture and the things going on around us, yes, right. Uh, there, there are things to pay attention to, but there's also, you know, the faith that we live by that is not fear-driven, and it's not, you know, slap the panic button every single time something happens. So, so, so rest in the Lord. Trust him in these circumstances. Why? Because our lives are marked by the cross, right? The, the sacrifice has been made. Jesus Christ shed his blood, and proverbially, spiritually, your lives should be marked with the blood of the Lamb. The doorposts of your existence, the doorposts of the lentil should bear the mark of the cross. And so we are covered. We're covered by the blood of the Lamb. Here, they, without understanding the fulfillment of these things, had sacrificed the Lamb, and they were told to continue doing that. Now, there is the way it's written here, and history seems to tell us that they observed the Passover and left Egypt and so far haven't observed it again. So when you come into the land and you experience God's fulfillment in his promise and you receive homes and you're living in them, then you need to carry out the observation of the Passover. There's something uh, within that that's uh, sort of poignant in how we go through periods of time where faith is initiated and then struggles and growth occur and then there comes a maturity and a settling in and there needs to be a faithful observation of the things we've learned through the process. You know, what it is the Lord has instilled and created in our hearts and minds. I, mean, I, I see right now how a lot of people's faith has been shaken. And a great number of people fell away from being in church and being in fellowship. And many of them have not returned at all. And they have all kinds of reasons uh, for not doing so. My encouragement, shake off the excuses and return to fellowship. Return to the body. Come back to what the Lord is doing in our midst and experience that. Be part of that. Right. You know, I shared recently how that term of, you know, the gathering together of the saints is the interlocking for function. Right. It's, it's not just that I observed the teaching online. It's a matter of being integrated into the entity for usefulness, finding your place of function within the body of Christ. So. Take that uh, to heart. Here, no leaven, right? Uh, symbolically, throughout the scripture, a symbol of sin. 
And the Lord wants that purging out. I, I find this actually very gracious, right? Because they were allowed to use leaven. I inserted the completely unfelt humor about, you know, pita bread there. But, uh, you know, we are allowed, they were allowed to use leaven in their bread, in their cooking. When it came to the observation of Passover, there was the complete purging out. Point being, we're prone to sinfulness, right? It, it is It is not God giving us a license allowing us to sin, but the propensity is there. And there are the needful reminders to realign ourselves, to purge things out. Stuff creeps in, stuff grows, things take root, and they need to be constantly attended to. You know, God puts these regular observations of worship into place so that annually, at least three times a year, they're coming together in remembrance. They're observing the Lord and they're taking those milestones and saying, that's right. I need to get my heart back to where it belongs. You know, I, I often point out when once a month we share together in communion, as you reflect upon the last time you took communion and the drift that occurs in just four weeks time. And how you need to realign your heart. You need that constant maintenance. Daily, monthly, annually, there need to be those reminders, those high points, which draw our attention back to the Lord and cause us to go through a purging out process. Here's, here's my warning within that, right? You know, you're a family. You're literally using yeast, leaven in your cooking, and you come to this observation. And you're thinking like, Really, I mean, I'm going to throw this yeast out, and next week I'm going to need it. So I'll just put it in the back of the cupboard. And we'll go through the ceremony, and then I'll dig it up. Listen, sin, we do. We negotiate with that, don't we? Right? I won't purge this out. I'm just going to fall back into this. I'll just, I'll okay, I'll cut back, I'll, whatever we do, we do weird things with it. The Lord wants the purging out, why? Because what he'd like to see is the eventual eradication, right? It needs to go. Uh, the symbol that this contains of sin is a thing that needs to ultimately be purged out. God doesn't, he even says it himself, right? He doesn't wink at our sin. Like, I know how you are, you know, and just leave it in place. God wants the cleansing to occur in our lives. And this, this annual process is supposed to remind them of that. That things do creep in and we've got to root them out and we've got to get to the place of purification. So, you know, as we move forward, all of this obviously is pointing forward to Jesus Christ. Such a remarkable thing that uh, you have uh, Daniel the prophet who, uh, you know, I'm going to do that whole thing uh, 173,880 days again. You know, he, he is inquiring of the Lord. He's been reading Jeremiah. He's in captivity in Babylon. And he realizes, oh, the Lord specifically said through the prophet Jeremiah, we're going to be in captivity for 70 years. And we've been here for almost 70 years. So he begins to pray and fast and inquire of the Lord. Is this right? Am I reading this accurately? Are we about to be set free? Essentially, he, he summarizes his prayer to the Lord by saying, what is the future of Israel? Well, Gabriel shows up 21 days later and relays to him a message that is the entire future of Israel, confirming, yes, you're going to be set free from captivity and be allowed to return into the land of Israel. But he takes us all the way up into eternity, not even just to the millennium. He takes Daniel through an explanation. And part of that is uh, Daniel chapter 9, verse 25, he tells him, from the order to restore and rebuild the temple to the coming of the Messiah is going to be 173,880 days. March 14th, 445 BC, King Xerxes gives the order to restore and rebuild uh, the walls of Jerusalem and the temple. And 173,880 days later, April 6, 32 AD, Jesus Christ rides into Jerusalem on the colt of the donkey being hailed as the Messiah of Israel. He becomes the Passover on the very day that Passover is being observed. 
He is the sacrificial lamb. Such an amazing fulfillment. They've been going through this dress rehearsal annually for that occasion. And then comes the actual performance of, you know, I hate to say play, but the actual performance of the act. And they miss it all together. You know, they're, they're, they're more enthralled with uh, the dress rehearsal than they are the act that Jesus Christ performs. So, you know, the observation is important. Uh, the holidays, the worship of the Lord in these regards are very important. But it is also possible to observe occasions such as Easter and not have our heart where it should be in the observation of you know, things like Jesus Christ's resurrection. We, we can miss the substance by being enthralled with the rehearsal. So, verse 5, uh, You may not sacrifice the Passover with any, within any of your gates, which the Lord your God gives you, but at the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. There you shall sacrifice the Passover at twilight, at the going down of the sun at the time you came out of Egypt. So correlation between when they did it and then correlation between when Jesus performs it, right? Uh, they go through the process, arresting him in the middle of the night, which is against the law, perform the trial, which is against the law, you know, go through all of these things that are breaking the law to bring him to the place where he is crucified. And then they even have to get it done quickly. Why? Because Passover's coming, right? They're doing it exactly according to the rehearsal. You know, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus have to come to Pilate and request the body of Jesus and get him quickly down off the cross and into the tomb before the holy day begins. And then just so we're clear, you can do the research. Uh, you know, the Passover that is being referred to is, is this Passover, not the Sabbath, right, of Saturday. So, so when it's talking about that's puts some confusion into the whole modern observation of like, you know, Good Friday. You know, you try, try to jam three days into, you know, uh, basically a day and a half doesn't work. Uh, that's because he probably was not crucified on uh, Friday. He was probably crucified on Wednesday. But anyway, so, so, so that you're clear, take the time to, to look into all of that. Jesus does exactly what they're observing here in rehearsal at twilight going down to the sun at the time you came out of Egypt, you shall roast and eat it in the place which the Lord your God chooses. And in the morning you shall turn and go to your tents, consuming the sacrifice, right? A picture of the new covenant, Jesus taking the body and the blood, right? We consume uh, the symbolically Jesus' sacrifice, making it part of ourselves as it gives us life and eternal life, freedom from sin. Verse 8, six days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there will be a sacred assembly to the Lord your God. You shall do no work on it. Again, most remarkable that they're, they're still outside the promised land, and God is saying, so when I've fulfilled these things, make sure that you observe them. You know, when I've accomplished these works in your lives, many of us in this room can testify to promises the Lord gave us years ago. And when the promise came, we were filled with a joy and an excitement and an exuberance over that. And then time passed. And maybe our hearts even sank and perhaps even became faithless. And the hope was lost. And then, years later, the fulfillment came. Some of us are still in the place where we're in the hopeless state, awaiting the fulfillment of those things. Others of us have observed the fulfillment of those things. The faithfulness of the Lord is something to pay attention to. You know, here he has promised them, you're going into the land. You're going to receive the land. You're going to have homes. You're going to have a particular place where you're no longer going to uh, 
uh, have this tent, you're going to have an actual temple where my name will abide and you'll go there to worship and you'll bring your Passover. At this point, right, they're beginning to see the hopefulness of this promise fulfilled, but they don't have it in their hands yet. And, right, uh, three plus decades, almost four decades has passed, right, in their mind since they escaped Egypt. You know, really, you get to the place where that can be very discouraging to your faith and to your hopefulness. The Lord is saying, nope, it's already done. We've completed that. We're finished that. When you get there, make sure you take care of these things. There's a beautiful picture that the Lord is faithful to accomplish. Observe these statutes. Verse 13. um, You shall observe the Feast of Tabernacles seven days. uh, When, uh, I'm sorry, I, I go back to nine. How about that? Uh, you shall count seven weeks for yourself. Begin to count the seventh week, the, the seven weeks from the time you begin to put the sickle to the grain. Now, this is also very interesting, right? Because you go from Passover into Pentecost. So these are the three Passover, Pentecost, and then Feast of uh, Tabernacles or Feast of Booths, uh, as it is sometimes called so the uh, Pentecost that's being described here is is the beginning of the process and what's so interesting to me is yes Passover and we get such a great image uh, given to us there here at the beginning of this process of Pentecost at Jesus resurrection the priest was in the temple waving this big sheaf of grain before the Lord as a symbol of the Pentecost that was to come, right? The harvest, the ingathering was going to take place. That was going to happen 50 days later, okay? So, so consider, right, from the crucifixion to Pentecost, you got this 50-day span that takes place. But at the three-day mark, here's the priest waving this grain, right? The first of the harvest, Jesus raised from the dead, he, he's holding symbolically that in his hands and making this, this praise presentation before the Lord that, you know, the harvest is coming. What's the harvest? 3,000 souls are going to come to Christ in one day. I don't know if you've ever considered it this way before, but 3,000 evangelists are going to be created that day, right? They're from all over the world, or at least the central Mediterranean region. They've all converged on Jerusalem, and they're there towards as far back as you know Asia, actually, through uh, Asia Minor and uh, Central Asia, and all the way back to Asia. They've come from from basically Europe, the top of the African continent, and they're all going to disperse back to those places. So, three thousand souls are going to be present when Peter speaks. They're going to be gathered together by the sound of the rushing wind, the descending of the Holy Spirit. They're going to hear the message. They're going to receive the gospel. They're going to be converted to Christianity, and they're going to be dispersed back to their homes to spread that gospel. So the grain, right? The symbol of the grain there before the Lord, grain gathered in, and then the seeds showered back over all of that region. You know, like the sower would go through the field and scatter the grain and and it takes root and Christianity is born. And it grows unfettered for 350 years. It it doesn't even slow down. It just grows with an intensity until Constantine kills it by (laughs) making it the state religion uh, of Rome. And Roman Catholicism is born and idolatry enters in and the demise at least of church growth occurs in that just a massive dose of herbicide sprayed all over, uh, you know, is what is what it deadens the church in the process. So, so beginning here at the, the feast of weeks, they have this again rehearsal, this symbolism, this preparation for what is going to happen through the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the coming of the Holy Spirit. And Peter preaching to all of those people gathered in Jerusalem. Verse 9 again, you shall count seven weeks for yourselves. Uh, seven uh, times seven, forty-nine. Begin to count the seven weeks from the time you begin to put the sickle to the grain. Then you shall keep the feast of weeks to the Lord your God with the tribute of freewill offering from your hand, which you shall give as the Lord your God blesses you. 
You shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters, your male servants and your female servants, the Levite who is within your gates, the stranger and the fatherless, and the widow who are among you at the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. You shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and you shall be careful to observe these statutes. Everyone worships. right? God has that um, open border policy, right? But the open border policy includes if you come here, then you worship the one true living God. You know, there, there isn't an opportunity within Israel at this time to just bring your idolatry in, let it take root and corrupt and change the culture. Anyone is welcome. Come within the borders, right? He's very open about bring people in. Let us be a place of refuge for the whole world. But when they come here, they're going to worship Jehovah, Yahweh, the one true living God. And in that uh, process, you know, he's telling them that they have to be careful to observe these things once they're in the land, not to forget them and forsake them. So then, I guess now more appropriately, verse 13, you shall observe the Feast of Tabernacles seven days when you have gathered from your threshing floor and from your wine presses. Now, it's going to give a greater explanation, but I'll just sort of set this out. Tabernacles uh, is, you know, booths, they call them, you know, Feast of Booths. The idea of camping out is, is basically... The process there's you know celebration and worship all within this but mostly what they did was camp out in the backyard literally set up a makeshift lean to the, the rougher the better was the idea uh, the, the less it provided shelter it was supposed to be uh, you know a raw symbol not not something that was actually a home or a house or booth they, the kids the family were supposed to sleep under the stars. And it was supposed to inspire the questions of why are we doing this? And it would serve as a reminder to this is how we lived for 40 years. We left out of Egypt and we were on this perpetual camping trip as we wandered through the wilderness until God brought us into this promise. And, and in that, there's something uh, you know, to consider how we might relay that to our own families, right? Because the 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 whole observation throughout this is remember where you came from. The Lord is continuously saying, remember that you were a slave. Remember what I brought you out of. I, I have witnessed a lot of families, and, and don't take me wrong in this. You want to be careful what you share with people about your sinful past, you know, uh, there there is a danger in um, being sharing inappropriately, being braggadocious or anything like that, or or even just sharing too much, too many details. But <clears throat> there needs to be the message that I did not always follow the Lord. There was a conversion in my life, even if you were raised within Christianity, that there there was a point where you made it your personal commitment. You know, that, that you made that decision. It's very, very important that we relay that to the people around us, whether they be our children or our loved ones or our families or our friends, right? Because people can look on at our lives and, and think, oh, you know, squeaky clean Christian. This is just how they always are, how they've always been. And um, like I say, you know, each of us, you know, some of us more than others, are painfully aware of how polluted and filthy our past is. And I'm, I'm not encouraging us to just, you know, pollute others with, with, with what we uh, participated in. But the reality of I was a prisoner to sin and, and Christ delivered me from that. That is a necessary message for us, right? We sang this morning. Uh, you know, by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. That, that needs to be present, that we would share with people what the Lord has done in our lives and they would know the conversion. So here, as they are going to, you know, take their families, move out of their homes, right, and live 
in a camping setting. Uh, I learned as a young man that uh, my wife doesn't actually like camping. You know, yeah. she was all excited. We're well, camping, and you know, camping to me is like, you know, get a tent and a sleeping bag, and we'll find the rest along the way. You know, and uh, you know, it is it is very much glamping. You know, glamour camping. When, uh, when Lori goes, which, you know, I've actually grown to appreciate a tremendous amount. It's so much better than that root stuck in your back and, you know, all those different things that were so unpleasant about camping and rain. Rain is never pleasant. Uh, but here, it was supposed to be uncomfortable. It, it was supposed to be that reminder for them, right? Because the comforts of life can rob us of the remembrance we can get we can get too comfortable and, and we do need to be reminded we do need to look back so when you've gathered from your threshing floor and from your wine presses verse 14 and you shall rejoice in your feast and you and your sons and your daughters your male and servants and your female servant and Levite the stranger and the fatherless and the widow who are within your gates, seven days you shall keep a sacred feast to the Lord your God in the place which the Lord chooses, because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and all your work of your hands, so that you surely rejoice. So, verse 16, three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at the Feast of Weeks, at the Feast of Tabernacles. And they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessing of the Lord your God, which he has given you. So within the observation, giving to the Lord as a, a reminder that all of our substance comes from the Lord, all of their substance came from the Lord, the Lord requests that they honor him with that. Verse 18, you shall appoint judges and officers in all your gates. Now, again, for clarification, right, the gates of the city, we tend to have an inappropriate uh, picture in our minds of just, you know, walled city, iron gate. Uh, this is the entry point. Sometimes when they say gate of the city, it was actually right there at that entry point. But the gate of the city is more along the lines of what we would refer to as city hall. Okay, uh, So this was, and, and within a, a nation, the gates of the nation, the gates of the city, you're talking about the capital, where the decisions are made, where counsel is had, where court is held, where documents are signed, where war is waged, right? Uh, this, this is where everything is officiated from. So, so when he's making this statement, you shall appoint judges and officers in all your gates, which the Lord your God gives you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with just judgment. You shall uh, not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality nor take a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twist the words of the righteous. You shall follow what is altogether just, that you may live and inherit the land which the Lord your God is giving you. Uh, justice is blind. Well, no, it's not. Uh, it, it it is blinded by bribes. Um, you know, it, it true justice is blind. But what we experience today. You know, the more money you have, the bigger the lawyer you can get. You know, and, you know, if we're thinking, well, you know, they don't get away with it. They still get sentenced. If they didn't have that money to fight, the sentence probably would have been a lot heavier. Right. Money does pervert the way of justice. Right. Right and wrong, black and white is what the Lord is asking for. Now, I, I do want to point something out that. Judgment and justice within the body of Christ and within the church is largely lost. The church does not participate in church discipline much anymore today. Things are just allowed to go. And it's really, really treacherous. It's really, really dangerous 
for the body of Christ. Paul very specifically gives outlines about the man who's in sexual sin, and he tells the church at Corinth, you need to put that man out of the church, right, for the health of the church. And he goes into explanation there saying, we don't judge the world, right? The world has nothing to do with us. We have nothing to do with the world. So we're not in the world judging the world. But within the body of Christ, we are and we should. And the church today is largely reversed that process. Where they say nothing about what's going on inside the halls of the churches. But they're out in the streets screaming at the sinners and pronouncing judgment upon all of them. They've got a lot to say about what the world is doing. And they don't say anything about what's going on inside the church. It's very, very necessary that the church maintain the health of the church. If things are left to grow within the church, left unattended, it destroys the church. Uh, Lori and I were just having a conversation about a ministry we've known and loved for years. And years ago, they started a diversion away from the truth. And that deviation grew until the early millennium years where they, they came completely off the rails. And, you know, we loved them, but from a much greater distance after that. And we just received word yesterday that it's probably the end of that whole ministry. Scandal has been announced and it has permeated the entire leadership and every, every level of their church if, if anything is left after this, I'll be astonished. I'll be astonished. It's just a complete meltdown. Because they don't deal with things. Leave things in place that are destructive. You know, and, I, and I purposely speak in generalities uh, rather than the specific ministry because it applies to us all very directly, very generally. If we don't understand this, right? then things really do get painful and destructive. You shall not plant for yourself any tree or wooden image near the altar which you build for yourself to the Lord your God. You shall not set up a sacred pillar which the Lord your God hates. So this is the idea of some, uh, well, perverted symbol is what they would participate in. They would plant a tree and let it grow and then they would delimit and they would carve it into a perverted symbol of reproduction and sexuality and very very common it was the most common of pagan uh, practices in worship and and the lord is specifically saying you shall not do this and and you and i are thinking well of course you wouldn't do that. i mean the temple come on yet they did it Right? They depart from the Lord to a degree to where this stuff was literally going on inside the temple by the time the Lord sends them away into captivity. You know, I, I have seen things going on inside the church that I was just astonished, astonished with, you know, in, in not too recent a past. You know, the, in the name of worship, you know, things that I would put under the label of sensuality, not mild, you know, strong. And you, you can guarantee all, all the teenage boys were trying to sit as close as they could to the front to observe what was going on because the church has lost its moorings and departed into things which are even sexually sinful, incorrect and corrupt. So the Lord warns against that. Deuteronomy 17 uh, verse 1, you shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God a bull or sheep that has any blemish or defect. And we've talked about that, for that is an abomination to the Lord your God. The Lord wants the best. The Lord wants the best. And then listen, the Lord will allow that which is compromised into our lives to test us to see whether we will provide him with what is best. Right. If you've got two sheep and one of them is born deformed, you know, the temptation is to keep the good one for yourself. 
and to give that which is lesser to the Lord. And the Lord is saying, no, I want the best fruit. I, I, I can attest, testify to the fact I've been challenged in this many times in life. And when I have trusted the Lord and given to him of the first fruits, he has turned around and blessed me beyond what I could handle. Any, anyone who tries the Lord in that, as he said in Malachi, God will prove himself to be extremely strong and care for our needs. He doesn't want the defect. He wants the best in the circumstances. Verse 2 if there is found among you within any of your gates, which the Lord your God gives you, a man or woman, who has been wicked in the sight of the Lord. He gets specific, so you know, don't just start thinking, like, ah, I've been wicked. You know, Of course, we've all been wicked. He gets specific about idolatry here. So if anyone has uh, been wicked in the sight of the Lord your God in transgressing his covenant, who has gone and served other gods and worshipped them, either the sun or moon or any of the hosts of heaven, which I have not commanded, and it is told you and you hear of it, then you shall inquire diligently. And he's going to be specific about this also, right? Can't just be hearsay. There has to be confirmation to this thing. And if it is indeed true and certain that such an abomination has been committed in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gates, again, that idea of the town hall, the place of judgment, the courts, the man or woman who has committed that wicked thing, and shall stone to death that man or woman with stones. Whoever is deserving of death shall be put to death on the testimony of two or three witnesses, and he shall not be put to death on the testimony of one witness. So this can't just be somebody bears a grudge against somebody else, you know, shows up and says, I saw that person, you know, committing idolatry. And so they drag them out and stone them to death. It has to be that you've investigated and you've had, ha you've been able to find clear confirmation of two or more witnesses to confirm that this is in fact the case. Then, this will you know, be the, the death sentence in the process. The hands of the witness shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hands of all the people. So you shall put away the evil from amongst you. So again, uh, you know, to further confirm, if, if you're going to bring an accusation like this against someone, understand you're going to have to actually be part of the execution. So, so you can't just be super angry at somebody, make an accusation, and sort of wash your hands of the judgment that is going to come. You're going to have to actively be involved in carrying out the judgment uh, that is to be enacted in this situation. And, and the whole purpose, to put evil away from amongst you. Uh, the Lord continuously wants this done. Uh, you know, the, the church that I spoke of, uh, moments ago, um, one of the things that they got wrapped up in a number of years ago was the emergent church movement. So uh, that that was a movement. It's still around. It's kind of faded in popularity, but it was an effort within Protestant churches to take us back to Catholicism. You know, uh, putting icons up in the church, having prayer stations where you would pray to the saints, burning incense and candles to the saints, uh, honoring the Pope as the head of the Christian church. You know, that church engaged in those things, you know, and, and met strong confrontation uh, from the churches they were in fellowship with about what, you know, what we learned as, you know, Christianity, that those things were incorrect and improper. That's why the church had the Protestant, you know, the Protestant Reformation that protested against the Pope and the Catholic Church and removed itself from those influences, there was a reason we protested those things and left because they were sinful and they were wrong. It's idolatry to pray to anyone other than Jesus Christ. And this church was promoting that. And now, today, total scandal, completely devastated. Not removing the evil from amongst them led to what, in my opinion, is the total destruction of their you know, international ministry. 
tragic. Tragic. When, when a church will not deal properly with church uh, discipline and remove evil from its midst, the outcome is always going to be very tragic. Verse 8, if a matter arises which is too hard for you to judge between degrees of guilt for bloodshed, between one judgment or another, or between one punishment and another, matters of controversy within your gates, then you shall arise and go to the place which the Lord your God chooses. And you will come to the priests. So take it to the, your spiritual leadership, the Levites, to the judge there in those days and inquire of them. And, and the Lord makes that statement because he knows that in the future he's going to appoint judges uh, in Israel. They're not going to have a king, uh, but they will have judges that arise and, and rule and lead the nation of Israel. So take it to those of spiritual leadership that pronounce upon you the sentence of judgment. You shall do according to the sentence which they pronounce upon you in that place which the Lord chooses. And you shall be careful to do according to all that they order you, according to the sentence of the law in which they instruct you, according to the judgment which they tell you, you shall do. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left from the sentence which they pronounce upon you. Now, the man who acts presumptuously and will not heed the priest who stands to minister there before the Lord your God or the judge, that man shall die. So you shall put away the evil from Israel, and all the people shall hear and fear and no longer act presumptuously. So if there is an issue that arises in the nation, the congregation of Israel, that the, the elders who have been appointed by Moses have examined and looked at and it's moved up through all of the different ranks, come to the leadership such as Moses or Joshua later or the priesthood and then moves over to the priesthood and nobody uh, is able to figure out but the priest pronounces judgment in the circumstances. Then you have to follow what is said. If they refuse that, here, the scripture refers to that as presumption. And if they're going to presume what? You're presuming that God is not speaking through the priesthood. You're presuming that you know better than the priesthood. The Lord is saying if they will not obey the spiritual leadership, then that person needs to be put to death. Now, there are some debates about whether it's put to death or just put out of the nation Either way, you know, I'll be satisfied with either explanation. Get rid of that person, right? Do not have them in your midst. There is a New Testament application to that. I, I, I really hate counseling as a pastor. I despise it. I, I'll do it. Don't shy away. Be sure to come if you've got questions and issues. But um, you know, this is the difficulty right here. Right, You relay to someone the best biblical counsel you can, you can give them. And then if they do not heed that, then it's very damaging to the personal relationship. You know, they, they somehow assign the negative outcome in the situation to the conversation that they had with their spiritual leadership. It's a difficult thing. Uh, my best advice is either sort it out on your own, or if you bring it to your your spiritual leadership, abide by what is said. You know, if you're going to involve them, don't come light lightheartedly. Like, oh, I'll just go see what they have to say. <laughs> if you're going to come and ask questions like that then my best advice is whatever's laid out, live by that. You know, if it comes straight from the word of God, right? If you're just talking about, I don't know, what kind of lawnmower do you like? You know, then no big deal. I mean, we can have that conversation. But if you're coming with the in-depth spiritual question and the answer is delivered, my best advice is live by that. Yeah, I think that this biblical principle overlays that very accurately. Verse 14 when you come to the land which the Lord your God is giving you, 
and uh, giving you and possesses it and dwell in it and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. Now, God has forbidden them from having a king, but he says, when you do it, right? This is what I want you to do. So you've got to have a, a king like the nations around me. You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. One from among your brethren you shall set as king over you. You shall not set a foreigner over you, over you who is not your brother. That has nothing to do with nationality. right? This isn't some form of racism. This is to do with spirituality. Uh, the, the people who have been raised under this belief system, right? He's going to give very explicit details about how this king is going to have to not only observe the law, he's going to have to write a copy of the law for himself and then carry it with him at all times and, you know, at least have it within his ownership and possession and live by it. So, so anyone that's going to come in needs to be of the nation of Israel in order to lead the nation of Israel. And by the way, you know, uh, Jezebel was not right. <laughs> Ahab and Jezebel, and you know that great wickedness and the introduction of Baal worship, uh, the departure of the ten tribes of the northern uh, kingdom. Uh, you know that was where it came off the rails. But on, you know the worst expression of all of that was Ahab and Jezebel, and uh, Jezebel was not of the nation, and she is what brought in that profound idolatry. 16, but he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses, for the Lord has said you shall not return that way again. Uh, so interesting, we often hear that David was a man after God's own heart, and uh, I've heard many pastors preach inappropriately on that, implying that David was just such a pure and perfect and sinless man, right? A wretched individual. And when, when, when he departed from the Lord, uh, the degree to which he became murderous was not just Ahab. His gathering together, uh, you know, during the time that he was uh, working with the Philistines, and the remarkable sin in his life. But loyalty to God, strange as that sounds, his heart never departed from worshiping God. Okay, a man after God's own heart. He stayed loyal to the Lord. It's a strange thing. I wish I didn't even have to say that that way, right? Tremendous sin, yet he never entered into idolatry. He did fall. His son did. Solomon, right here, this description, Solomon immediately begins to multiply horses unto himself and chariots. And then the next statement, wives, right? And now he's building those wives' temples, and he's going in and worshiping with them. Tremendous failure on his part. Don't return to Egypt for anything is what the implication is. Don't go back to Egypt for anything, right? <clears throat> There's a big problem within Christianity today where it honors psychology way too much. Way too much. Right? At best, psychology at times makes very accurate assessments as to what your problem might be. At times, might make very accurate assessments as to what your problem might be. Almost all of the time, its conclusion and its treatment is incorrect. <laughs> right? So many people are enthralled with psychology within Christianity that it's come to a place where Christian psychologists even refer to psychology as a gleaning from the Egyptians. Right? The gleaning from the Egyptians was when the nation of Israel, we talked about last week, departed out of their captivity in Israel and in Egypt, and they went to the Egyptians and said, we're about to leave town and you need to pay us. And the Egyptians gave them great sums of gold right, and wealth, right? And they left very wealthy when they left out of Egypt. What's the very first thing they did with all of that wealth, you guys? Golden calf. Right? Something that replaced the worship of God. Right? Here, here, the Lord is saying, I don't want you going back to Egypt, not even for horses. No, no, no strength should be derived from them. 
Right? Everything we need is contained within the divinity of Jesus Christ. That's what Peter told us. All that we need pertaining to life and godliness can be found in Jesus Christ. There's nothing else. Life and godliness. What else is there? There's nothing else. Everything is covered by that. So make sure, guard your heart, consider what the Lord might be saying. Don't go back for horses. You shall not return that way again. Verse 17, neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest he, his heart turn away. Uh, you know, David had many wives. Well, I, I don't disagree with that. And it was wrong. The scripture says that it was wrong. Well, here's the thing. Uh, adding or multiplying, right? <clears throat> no, no, no insult to my mother-in-law at all. She's a wonderful woman. But Solomon had a thousand women in his life, okay? 700 wives, 300 concubines. Who in their right mind would want a thousand mother-in-laws. You know, there's there's something to consider. There's a, you, you got, I mean, one, right? Interestingly enough, you know, interesting enough, challenging enough. There's enough there for, for us to be corrected by and taught by and learn from a thousand. You're out of your ever-loving mind. I didn't say anything about wives, did I? So, in the process... Lest his heart turn away, no, no wives. Lest his heart turn away, no multiply wives. Nor uh, shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. Silver was as common as stones. Stones. Prop the door open at the house. Too hot in the house. Just prop the door open with a big chunk of silver. Yeah, makes sense, right? That's how wealthy it was during Solomon's kingdom. And what happened to the kingdom under his reign, right? Division. Division. That's where the ten northern tribes departed. Right? Their hearts were already grieved. And, and the way he had raised his children led to those tribes saying, we don't want anything to do with you. And the departure is an unfortunate thing. Also it shall be when he sits on the throne of his kingdom and he shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book from the one before the priests, the Levites, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God and be careful to observe all the words of his law and these statutes. There's the summary of our existence. Continuously, daily, always read from the word of God that you would learn more and more thoroughly, continuously to fear the Lord your God and to observe the things in obedience that are written in his word. That's how simple the whole thing is. Oh, the complexity in religion and Christianity and where do I, and, you know, all, yeah, be in the word continuously that you would learn to fear the Lord your God and observe what he has written. It's, it's, the program's pretty simple. Doing it is the challenge, right? Why? Because your flesh has to die. That, that's where the whole process is difficult, is in dying to yourself. You're going to follow these statutes. That his heart may, be, may not be lifted up above his brethren, that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left, that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of of Israel. And again, that prolonging is not a promise of longevity of life. That prolonging is a dwelling in the land. You do not observe these things, then God is going to shorten your days in the land. You're going to be driven out. It certainly has application about longevity of life, but the Lord is specifically talking about as long as you observe this, I'll let you stay in the land. Right? Why? Because there's a group of people in the land presently, as the Lord is saying these things to them right here through Moses in the recounting of the law here in Deuteronomy. There's a group of people living in that land, and they're going to go in and dispossess them of that land. Why? Because they're incredibly wicked. They're incredibly evil. They're incredibly idolatrous. And God has to put a stop to all of that great wickedness. And the Lord is saying, as long as you observe these things, I'll let you stay in the land. 
If you depart from these things, I'm going to do the same thing to you that I'm doing to the people that you're about to drive out. That's my land, and I only lease to those who are obedient to me. It's a remarkable thing. And we could see similar things in our own lives, in our own culture, and in our own nation. As God's temper is being aroused. As this nation defies him more and more. There is judgment to come. People started saying that, 9-11. Is this God's judgment? And all the debates go, guess what? It is. It was. And it will continue to be. And it will grow as long as this nation continues to drift from the Lord. We can be the remnant. We can be those, right? Remnant revival. That's what we're hoping for. Right? Revival would be amazing. But we always, always, without any conditions, have the opportunity to be the remnant. So be those who remain in Christ and experience his blessing. Amen? Amen. All right, let's stand and pray, and we'll pick up with chapter 18 next week. Father God, we are so grateful. You are so gracious, so good to us. Help us to follow you. Help us to observe the things you want us to. We long to see you come, Lord. We would say with John, Maranatha, come quickly. Lord. But at the same time, we know your patience. And the purpose of your patience is to bring people into your kingdom. So help us to be ambassadors, that we would open our mouths, that we would recognize the opportunities, that we would share with people the things that we need to. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.